Hello and welcome to Conversation, a political podcast. This is your host, Matt. And we're here today. We've got uh, episode five. We've got two big topics to discuss. We've got Ted Cruz. We want to do a candidate spotlight on him. And we also want to talk about the issue with the Kentucky County Clerk and the gay marriage license. Although we just have to say this is September 3rd, but the episode's not coming out until September 6th. So if something does happen in those days, we're not talking about it on this one. And uh, all right, so we've got Sean with us today. What's up, guys? And we've got Zach with us. Hey, guys. And Joe is here as well, but he's kind of in the background moving stuff around. Hey. Yeah, there he is. All right, so we're going to start with Ted Cruz. I'm going to go over his history. He was born in 1970, so he's on the younger end. He's 45. And he has a long history involved in politics and law. He actually, he went to Princeton and Harvard. He graduated Princeton uh, cum laude and then Harvard Law School magna cum laude. And he did debate team for many years, very experienced with that. And then in politics, he has um, participated in many like groups in Congress, a lot of the committees and things like that. Even though he's only served one term, he was elected in 2012. He hasn't been in Congress that long, but he's been around politics and law pretty much his whole life. Um, he oh he did work uh, he were, he worked with the George W. Bush presidential campaign, and he uh, assisted uh, Bush in assembling his legal team during uh, some dealings. Uh, that was the Bush versus Gore case, and then. He got elected as senator from Texas. He's actually been, he's sponsored 25 bills of his own, and there's a couple important ones I want to bring up. He uh, sponsored a bill to repeal Obamacare, which is one of his big platforms. He's big anti-Obamacare. He uh, proposed a bill to prohibit the use of drones to kill citizens in the United States, which I think is a good one. Uh, he sponsored bills to investigate and prosecute felons and fugitives who illegally purchase firearms and prevent criminals from obtaining firearms through straw purchases and trafficking. And he also um, had a bill to permit states to require proof of citizenship for registering to vote in federal elections, which is basically the voter ID laws, which have been controversial. And he's also been pro the Keystone Pipeline with bills there. And he proposed a bill to eliminate all limits on direct campaign contributions to candidates for public, for public office. So you could bring in as much money as you wanted. And there's also one, Senate Bill 2195, which got passed. It would allow the President of the U.S. to, to deny visas to any ambassador to the U.N. who've been found to have been engaged in espionage or terror, terrorist activity against the U.S. And this was after Iran had chosen, I don't know how to pronounce it, Hamid Abu Talabi or something. He was their ambassador and he was involved in the Iran hostage crisis back in 1979. And that law got passed and he wouldn't be allowed to be the ambassador, which I think that was a very successful one. Uh, among the committees he's served on, he served on the Committee of Armed Services, Committee on the Judiciary, and Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, among others. There's a lot. And I want to jump into some of the issues. There's uh, one I think we can jump right into because I have a video clip from him for it, or an audio clip for you guys. <laughs> but uh, he it, he voted in the U.S. Senate in January that global warming is real but not man-made. And here's a clip from him in an interview with the Texas Tribune in March talking about uh, climate change and people who uh, believe in it. There we go. I believe in following evidence and data on the global warming alarmists. Anyone who actually points to the evidence that disproves, disproves their apocalyptical claims, 
They don't engage in reasoned debate. What do they do? They scream. You're a denier. They brand you a heretic. You know, it, it is today the global warming alarmists are the equivalent of the flat earthers. So uh, what do you guys think about that? That's some pretty harsh criticism, calling people who believe in climate change equal to flat earth people. Well, I think, I think it reflects definitely Ted Cruz is not in favor of having government funded climate, like prevent, prevention of climate change. And he, because he doesn't believe it's man-made, he also, there's also an element of uh, like, is this really going to help as well as, but he, he's yeah. allowing private organizations to help. But even if it, even if this is man-made, there's other countries involved that are not, that are contributing more to the pollution and contributing less to uh, yeah. preventing and, climate change. And to quickly jump in here, I know we've talked about it in the past about how, I mean, regardless of what the United States does, there's still going to be other countries out there that contribute to climate change. And Cruz's rationale is basically that if climate change is real, it's not caused by man, which means we can't do anything to stop it. We just have to live with it and hope we survive. As to what I'm about to say about him, though, I can't be completely definitive. But we were having a discussion before the podcast started about uh, how much support Ted Cruz, monetary support Ted Cruz has gotten from the big oil giants and the giants in the industry. Now, this is somebody who, even in the uh, first debate, was somebody who wanted people to know that He's not going to, and I quote, get in bed with the big interests. Now, obviously, you can't prove that there's, you know, there's a reason, there's a, you know, monetary motivation for him uh, to support some of these positions. But I mean, that definitely begs the question of whether or not he's staying true to his, I won't get in bed with big interests. Yeah. And just to jump in with the actual number, he's received more than $1 million in campaign donations from the oil and gas industry since 2011. And I mean, one of the big themes from this election so far is that we want somebody who stands for their own views and who isn't going to be bought by corporations. And for people, especially people in the middle, if you're, if that's one of the things you're looking at in a candidate, if you're looking at strongly and with a keen eye, you're going to see that and say, I'm not so sure. I mean, he may say he's not getting bought, but the evidence disagrees with that. Isn't that a reason why Donald Trump was so ahead in the polls because people didn't want a, con a politician. They wanted someone who's going to not he, stand by. He was just, he, he was going to say what they wanted. And basically he didn't care about the monetary aspect of it. He, somebody who would just care about getting something done. And that's why people like Trump and I, we've gone over that a lot in the past. Um, some of the other things, I mean, he's been big in foreign affairs with various things, very anti-ISIS. And he's basically like, if it's a crisis that involves us, we go in. But if not, he wants to stay out of it. Like with the Syrians of a war, he did not want anything to do with that. But ISIS, he wants to go all out against them. He's also big time anti-healthcare. I mean, he's, I mean, just looking at his Wikipedia page right now, there's pages upon pages of his efforts to take down Obamacare. And he's really, really against that. Um, you guys have something to say? There's something about the immediacy that I don't really like, though. With every single candidate, you know, even the candidate, you know, one of my favorites is Rubio. But there's something about the immediacy in all of them that I don't really like, particularly strong in this case, is the first thing I'm going to do when I become president is, you know, I'm going to make sure that most of the executive orders that the president has made today are going to be rescinded. When I'm president, the first thing I'm going to make sure I do is that, you know, there's a move to basically erase Obamacare from our country's legislative history. The first thing I'm going to do is X. The first thing I'm going to do is Y. And there's something about, you know, the immediacy of some of these things that I think the candidates may realize it works when it went in terms of, you know, garnering support. But it concerns me because you take things like Obamacare and whether or not um, some of the things that have happened in the past eight years are agreeable doesn't matter because a lot of the legislation and a lot of the executive orders that have been put in place are already established executive orders. You know, in the case, especially in the Obamacare case, I even know my people in my family 
my not necessarily direct family, but my extended family that now have health care because of Obamacare. And, you know, whether or not it's financially agreeable, morally agreeable, economically agreeable is something that I think at this point in time isn't necessarily the right thing to be talking about. I think the right thing to be talking about is not what you're going to be doing on the first day, but it's going to be what you're going to do over a period of time and what you're going to do to buffer some well, of these issues. I, I kind of have an objection to that, though, just looking at past history. I mean, obviously, I know this is a big comparison, but FDR, his whole campaign was, I'm going to do stuff in the first 100 days to make to make our country better. And that was one of the things yep. that he... But really FDR was, in FDR's first 100 days, you know, even though it looked as if it was immediately effective, in the long term, the economy didn't get any better until we were in World War II. His first 100 days were definitely a huge turn in the long run. Well, yeah, but, but that's what I mean. Like, he basically, he put in things in the first 100 days that, first of all, he said he was going to do it and he followed through with it. And secondly... It was stuff that actually ended up helping the country and helping us get out of the depression. I, I mean, the thing is, like, I don't mind Im immediate effect. I don't mind immediate, you know, things that candidates are, say that they're going to do and say that they're going to follow through on. You know, I don't mind that whatsoever. But I think what needs to be what needs to be put into context is that FDR was leading the country at a time when we were in the midst of a huge depression. Right now, I mean, the numbers, you know, may tell different stories. But most people can agree that the economy is slowly coming back to its, you know, previous and, and states. And it, it was never at the level of the Great Depression. Absolutely not. And the thing about the Great Depression is that the time for long-term change was over. And, you know, to a certain degree, we needed immediate movement. Right now, we don't need immediate movement. The last thing you want to do when, when an economy is gaining steam is to stop it in its tracks. The last thing you want to do when somebody who has health care, somebody who's finally beginning to, you know, be able to support themselves in terms of their medical care and, you know, and get finally people are getting back to work. You know, whether or not the numbers are there at this moment in time doesn't work for the sake of, or doesn't matter for the sake of argument. But, you know, it's important to consider that this isn't the same time that FDR was leading in. I, th I think what the politicians they want to do, they want to, they want to make a promise to the people that'll, that'll garner more support, like you said. But e regardless of whether it's slowly improving or not, people still feel like there's massive issues and they're still overall pes like pessimistic as a, as a nation with the state of things. And therefore, like these promises will, as you said, help garner more support. And th those are the people who are probably going to be, have the most effect. To thread this back to, to Cruz, though, and the important thing to keep in consideration is he's not the only one who's, obviously, like I said before, he's not the only one who wants to do things immediately. But I think what we do need to keep in careful consideration um, is the fact that he's another person who, I think, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but I think he's really like Rand Paul because he's anti-establishment. And there's something about the immediacy that's a huge draw. I'm going to do this. And, you know, I can't say that he really thinks that the first thing he's going to do when he, you know, goes gets into office is you know, rescind every single executive order. But I think, you know, there's something about his place in a grassroots um, counter-establishment candidate, his position as a counter-establishment candidate that's really, you know, that as part of his position right now in the race, that's what he's needed to do. Yeah. Actually, I want to jump to a couple other issues here. Because one of the things in this election is obviously you want to get the vote of the young people. Because if you can get young people excited, a lot of them tend to be more idealistic. So if you can get them excited about your viewpoints, you can really get them to go out and vote. That's one of the big things about how Obama got elected. But if you look at this, uh, Cruz is pro-life and he 
believes well, he believes that same-sex marriage should be a state issue, and he also believes that uh, legalization of marijuana should be a state issue. But on both gay marriage and legalization of marijuana, he does not agree with the legalization. He wouldn't stop it if it happened in a state, but he's not going to do anything to make a difference either. And I think two young people, those are two of the biggest issues. People like they don't want to see somebody as president who is anti-gay marriage and anti-legalization of marijuana because they feel like if they're not, if they don't go along with that, then they're not in touch with the country. Okay. Now, one of the things I want to talk about though is, you know, part of the draw, like I said before about Ted Cruz was always that he touted the fact that he was, he was grassroots. Um, and, you know, even though because of the people that Ted Cruz has backing him, you know, this may throw this a little out of proportion, I think it's still important to consider and, you know, to be an educated voter and see how effective, you know, this doesn't matter, this shouldn't matter to whether or not you're going to vote for him. But I think, you know, just to keep things in context and just to, to, to you know, know the situation, it's important to know how effective he's been at appealing to the grass, to his grassroots. Now, one of the things I'm looking at right now, it's an NPR article that it basically talks about small donations. And the article is titled, The Literal Shapes of Presidential Candidates' Donations. And 71% of Ted Cruz's donations are larger than $1 million. Um, to give you the entire spectrum, less than or equal to $200 donations are 11%, 201 to $2,000 donations are 14 and then uh, the next three brackets are about at 1% each before the $1 million donations. Now, there are other candidates who haven't necessarily emphasized the appeal that they want to have to the grassroots, but Bernie Sanders, on the other side, gets 77% of his donations from people who are giving less than $200. Now, I, mean, I think that's important because when it comes to the amount of donations, if you're getting it in million-dollar donations, you're attracting to the upper middle class upwards, versus if it's less than $200, you are attracting more to the common person. And I know... Once we get closer to the Democratic debates and everything, we're going to go more in depth into Bernie Sanders and how he's done that. It's really, it's, it shouldn't be a causal factor in your decision-making process, but it is showing effect. It's showing, you know, a few candidates, two candidates who part of their message is that we're going to appeal to everyone. We're going to appeal to the grassroots. And, you know, whether or not, you know, he's successful is in part dictated by the do where the donations are coming from. And there's even people with in his own party who are getting uh, who are getting more than more than he is from more than he is in small, small uh, donations. For example, Rick Santorum, who many have basically written out of the race, gets 23 percent of his donations from um, with of less than or equal to two hundred dollars and zero in the upper four brackets, whereas, you know, some some uh, more notable candidates, i.e. Hillary Clinton, only gets 14% of her uh, donations in packages of $1 million or more. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of surprised about that because Clinton's, so yeah. Clinton's one of the people that when think, you think about, you associate her with the upper class. I think it's definitely a good sign too. And she gets 60% 60, 60 of her donations from $200 to $2,000 and $1,300 under $200. The last person... Last person I want to mention is Ben Carson to put things in perspective in the Republican Party who gets 65% of his support from the grassroots. All right, to bring this back to Matt's point, these high amount donations tend to be from people and companies who, who uh, are against progressive social policies such as the legalization of marijuana and gay marriage. And Cruz is trying to appeal to both these, uh, the high amount donations that he's receiving, as well as the common people to try to get young people excited yeah, about these votes. He's trying to get like the people who are further to the right and richer than people who are to the left and poor, trying he, to get everybody. He's get trying to have a ground. wider scope by, he's supporting the generic Republican 
a stance of not wanting to legalize marijuana and not wanting to legalize uh, gay marriage, but he's leaving it up to the state so that he can gather support from all people. Okay. Um, one of the things I was going to say, though, is, you know, it's he's a person who touts, let's leave it to the states. All right. It's better if the states decide it. I don't like it, but it's better if the states decide. And in a lot of social issues, rather than legal, in a lot of social issues, I have no problem with leaving it to the states. But when somebody like Ted Cruz says, okay, I'm going to leave all these things to the states, and then comes out saying in certain situations that he wants to provide a legal definition for marriage, what happened to the rights of the states? Now, you're saying if you're going to be in a position of power, you're going to leave it to the federal government to define traditional marriage? Well, it's up to the states if they want to adopt that definition. No. You're basically indirectly forcing you know, in ideology down the throats of a lot of American people. Yeah, and the thing is, like, and this is generally a Republican thing, but this is a good example of it, which is that the Republicans tend to be for a more laissez-faire, free market economy, and they preach about how they want the government to get smaller, but when it comes to social issues, the government tends to get bigger in that regard. They tend to set moral definitions and legislate morality. And on the flip side, from the left, they tend to be much more into the economy and regulation and things like that, but they take a more hands-off approach with the social and moral elements. What do you find wrong with having the states decide on these social issues? Because there's there's vast well, differences between, let's say, Texas and California on their opinion of it. Wouldn't oh, it, yeah. Wouldn't I mean, there's, there's obviously differences there, but a lot of people have painted gay marriage in particular as basically a human rights issue, as in every human has the right to get married to the person they love. So what people are going to say there is that by leaving it up to a state's issue, some basically like Alabama, some of the southern states that are very religious and anti-gay marriage. If you're a gay person living there, you're you may have to wait 50 years before your state would leg would pass a law legalizing it. And people they were basically saying that first of all, um, they don't want to have to wait make people wait that long. And they think it's a human rights thing, so it should be now. And also, I mean. People have said it's the Supreme Court overstepping their bounds, that should be a state's issue, but it's one thing I have to say about that is that, I mean, if it's a human rights issue, then it's, therefore, it's past the states. Okay. All right, and with that, we're getting close to the end. Well, we want to talk about the Kentucky clerk situation a little bit, so we'll wrap up on Ted Cruz, and my question for the group now is basically, would you be happy if Ted Cruz was president? With the policies we've gone over and the decisions he'd have, do you think you would enjoy him? Although I agree with most of his things, there's some things I disagree with, but overall, I'd say he'd be a fine candidate. You know, I think having him in the situation, or having him in the office of the president, you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of his values, and I don't necessarily agree with all of his, you know, his approach to solving a lot of issues in the country, but, you know, something about him says leader to me. Something about his past, something about the way he acts on stage, and something about his collection as a person says confidence. And I think, you know, how, you know, if I'm presented with that situation where he is our president, I think that I wouldn't necessarily be unhappy. I think, you know, it'd be up to him to show that, you know, he's going to take definitive action, that he's going to listen to his grassroots. I think, does he listen to his grassroots? Like he says, he's going to listen to everyone. He's going to, he, you know, he wants that appeal. He wants it to be of the people. And, I, you know, does he do that? Then, yes, I think, you know, I'd be happy. Yeah, I think generally I'd be okay with him as a president, but I mean, going over some of his views, I think a lot of the smaller issues I agree with him on, but some of the big ones I have some issues with. But I mean, over a Democratic candidate, or the ones I've seen, I would take him. And I mean, I don't think he would be a bad one, especially considering his intelligence and his past with debate and law. I mean, I think he generally knows what he's doing. And at the very least, he wouldn't be a bad president. He would get something done. Yeah, positively. And now uh, we'll jump into the county clerk thing in Kentucky. For those who don't know, um, 
This is Rowan County, Kentucky. The it's an elected position, and the person who is elected, uh, one of their responsibilities is to sign marriage licenses. And she was elected before the gay gay marriage ruling happened, and since that happened, she is refusing to sign gay marriage license licenses on uh, religious value. And then she basically, because it's an elected office, she can't be fired. So she either has to be released or do her job, or in this case, not do her job. And the court ordered her to basically to start signing the gay marriage licenses. She refused, and now she's been put in jail for it. So, I mean, I think this really brings up the freedom of religion argument, which is that does somebody in that position have the freedom to decide what they're going, if they're basically, can they let their religion influence their decision in this situation? Well, I think she's been rightfully jailed. I mean, she's she has an elected office. She has the choice to resign, and yet she's choosing to stay in this elected office and not complete her duties. Yeah, and I think that's pretty much a straight-up answer. But the uh, the issue that people have brought up with that is the fact that basically her job description changed, if you will. When she was elected, there would not have been a moral issue with signing marriage licenses. And then it changed since she got elected in a way that was out of her control to something she does not agree with. I think the biggest issue here, though, is the question of whether or not one person's freedom of religion is more important than another person's freedom of religion. You know, obviously, the answer for a lot of us is, and the answer for me, I think, is, okay, well, it wasn't in the job description. However, you know, people fought long and hard for these rights. And, you know, the decision was made by basically the king of the hill when it came to the American justice system. And who are you to say that all of a sudden you're going to contest the entire justice system? I think she did achieve her object. She's making a stand and she's making a lot of people think about the issue of freedom of religion. But she's also making a lot of people think about gross misunderstanding of the Constitution and what it means to have freedom of religious expression. You're saying pitting one person's uh, religious freedom versus another's. But this, the, does the freedom of the person in the elected position, why do they hold the power? This isn't in their job description. This isn't what they're elected to make a decision on. And yet they're making this decision and they're, because of this elected power that they have that isn't even in this field, their freedom of religion is overbearing those of others. Yeah. And I think there's a comparison that can be made here, which basically that when a judge rules on a case, they're not judging based on how they feel about it or what their religion says is the correct way to rule. They're ruling on what the government says. So when they sign their name to that case, what they're really saying is the government believes or the I, the law believes that this is who is in the right. And I think that is the same thing here is that when the county clerk signs off on it, they're not saying I as a person agree with gay marriage. What they're really saying is I, on behalf of the government, say that the government uh, is okay with gay marriage. And I think people are kind of missing that here is that it, the, the religion shouldn't come into it at all. Yeah, I absolutely, I, I love that point, Matt. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before is that I think even one of the people involved in, you know, her legal situation said that just like people confuse the freedom of speech with having the ability to, you know, scream fire in a theater, um, is it's basically an analog to her situation in thinking that she has complete freedom of expression of her religion. You know, I always say a lot of times in these podcasts that you have rights until you begin to infringe on the rights of others. And, you know, yeah, of course she has freedom of of expression, freedom of uh, her right to express religion, her religious beliefs. But I think in this particular situation, she's beginning to infringe on the rights of others. Very, very hard earned rights. And not only that, like, there's nothing here that's stopping her from practicing her religion. She's not being forced as a person to agree with gay marriage. And other than that, 
there's really nothing. She's not, they're not saying you can't go to church or anything. They're not saying you can't pray. They're not infringing on anything like that, which I believe was really the intent of the freedom of religion in the Constitution. And that stems back to basically have, not having government religion. You believe what you believe as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of others. The thing is, she still does have this freedom. She has the freedom to resign. She has the freedom to not actively advocate something that she doesn't want to advocate. And yet she's trying to impose this upon a law that's already passed. Yeah, and she's basically, she's refusing to resign. She's basically trying to make a moral stand here, which to a certain extent, I mean, I agree if you, making a moral stand in something like this is not always a bad thing. Not compromising your moral standing up for what you believe in is a good thing, but not in this situation. And I also want to bring up the idea of precedent here, which is that maybe in this issue it's controversial, but by allowing her to have that power, what it opens up the door for is, let's say, I mean, there are Muslims out there who believe that women should not have driver's licenses. or women, They're very anti-women in some respects of that religion. So does that mean if there's a Muslim who is elected to this position, or even just another one I saw, a Muslim at the DMV, that they now have the power to decide who can and can't get licenses? Okay, I think the important issue here when it comes to her employment is this. When you sign up for a job as county clerk, your duty, and I'm sure it's in writing, is to obey the laws of the land, to obey the laws of Kentucky, and to obey the laws of the United States. You can't all of a sudden decide that you don't agree with something that's already legal precedent. You can't decide, for instance, that I don't think that this person was first, let's Let's take a murderer. I don't think that this person is a murderer. I don't think that this person decides to be dealt with. When you're in a position like that, your personal opinions, your personal biases should not and should never have anything to do with the decisions you make in that yeah, in position. You're not acting as an individual. You're simply acting on behalf of the government. You're basically there because obviously, the I mean, the government, you can't have Congress out there doing these things. So it's basically acting on behalf of what the federal government or the state government has said to simply approve it on a, an actual level, to actually basically do the final step of approving something. And no one's stopping her from crying and pouting all she wants about gay marriage. She can scream all day long about how much she, do, you know, how much she doesn't agree with the fact that it's been federally enforced. Nobody's stopping her from expressing those beliefs. But she's, like Matt said, she's not acting as an individual. She, right, you know, in that particular situation is a hand of the government. She is acting on behalf of someone else. She is, she could do whatever, you know, pleases her heart as to what she thinks is the right thing to do. And I think, you know, I think she was completely aware of the fact that in this situation, the best thing to do, the best thing to do in order to make noise was to say no to this couple who yeah. wanted to get married. It, it just screams a situation where it's almost like a petulant child screaming out because they want attention. It's, just, it's a similar type of situation. And, you know, I think this issue is definitely going to be one where there's plenty of controversy, where people are, are going to start to think about what it means, what it means in a variety of situations to scream fire in a theater. And uh, I think it's going to, you know, there are going to be plenty of waves created. You know, there's basically going to be, a, you know, a storm that this entire situation creates. Yeah. Actually, I just want to mention something. For those of you who listened to the rant I made, I think there's something. I was talking about division in America and how America is very much one side versus another. That's the way it's been portrayed now. It's a violent and aggressive thing. And you can already see that with this issue. I mean... We were discussing it in class today, and you could very clearly see two sides arguing angrily against each other with no real compromise. Nobody's saying you have, you might have a valid point. And I, I mean, I think right here you have a perfect way to really show that. 
I mean, you can't say the, f the freedoms of one person involves overturning a vote. Like the democratic system involves voting for something and the system of voting puts into action something yeah. that the people Maj majority rule. in there. If the majority exactly. of people want Major something, they get it. Majority rule. One person in a minority can't overturn that. That's not freedom. That's encroaching on freedom. Yeah. I mean, I mean if you basically say that the Kentucky clerk is right, what you're basically saying is that any individual in the government has the right to then basically let their personal beliefs get in the way of the way the people have voted. And I think, you know, that speaks to, a, you know, a bigger philosophical idea when it comes to politics. And like, I think it was, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think it was Locke who said that, you know, in order to live in a structured society, you're going to have to give up some of your rights. But I don't think that only applies to a government. I think that applies to you know, a lot of situations, she, you know, in any situation where you're an employee of a company where you don't agree ethically with what they're doing, you know, say you work for a law firm and you don't want to work a case, you accept the responsibility that you either do, you either do what your boss says, you either do what the company says, or you're going to be out of a job. Why is she exempt from the same rule? Yeah. Well, and well, I mean, part of it is the problem that it's an elected office, which means that she can't be fired. She can't be fired for not doing her job. She's put there by the people. And actually, I just thought of this. This might be an interesting point, which is that if if there was some kind of a revote right now on how the people felt about her, whoever elected her in the first place, if you pulled them again to basically see how they feel, because I mean, the question I have is, let's say if the people would still elect her, knowing what she's doing, what does that say? Because now you're basically giving an entire county the ability to put somebody into an office that they know is going to go against the already established laws. What does that do? It also creates a really big confusing situation because, you know, it would be a much different situation if the state of Kentucky decided to legalize gay marriage and then there was this entire issue of refusing to recognize it. I think it would have been a much more productive work of, um, would have been a much more productive work of protest. But I think you need to respect the society that you live in. You need to respect that the law of the land has been decided, you know, in order to live in a society that has order and a society that has structure, you need to respect the decisions that have already been made at a level higher than yours. Well, the thing, the thing is, the law has changed as she was in office. She was already elected before this law came into action. That wasn't part of her job description as she was elected. This is what she was elected for. So, as I was saying, should they have a revote? If they were to have a revote, would they elect her? Shouldn't they have a revote right when the the job description of the thing she's elected for changes. Well, the problem with that, though, is that depending on how technical you want to get in the way the laws are passed in Congress and at a state level and at a local level, that job description could change almost daily. And, I mean, it's obviously not practical to have a revote almost daily. And I was, I was basically offering it up as a hypothetical, not an actual revote, but basically to see where the citizens stand now. Because if, if they're on her side about this, that brings up a whole other problem and a really interesting discussion about whether or not she should actually be in office and whether she should have the power to I stop th things. I like think this. we're really missing something though, guys. I think, you know, we talk about her job description changing, but you know, in my opinion, I don't think that we that her job description has changed at all. I think that, you know, obviously I don't know the specifics, but I think that her job description being in the position that she was in from the very beginning was to, you know, obey the laws of the land and stand in as a hand of the government of the yeah. state of Kentucky, which uh, uh, res which yeah. answers to the federal government. Yeah, I mean, above all else, above the little tiny niches of the job description that you'll have, I think the number one rule is that you have to obey the laws that are given. And if you're not obeying those laws, the rest of your job description is completely irrelevant. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the issue plays out because now she's in jail. And as I understand it, she, because it's contempt of court, 
there's no bail. She's basically in jail until she either quits the job or she um, decides she's going to start signing gay marriage licenses or until her term is up. And I actually, I don't know the term lengths. I don't know how long it would be until she was out of the office. But I mean, this could be a holdout for a long time. And we all know the media is the longer it plays out. I mean, this is going to get a lot of coverage. You know, I think that also raises the question of whether or not she wanted, you know, everything that she's getting. Does she want to be in prison? You know, if you were a very, you know, if you were someone who had a very, very strong foresight of the consequences of your actions, then I think, you know, she could very well be a very intelligent person in thinking that, you know, the moment I get arrested, this becomes a very, very, very involved situation. This becomes a very nuanced situation. This becomes, you know, an argument with many, many, many Nietzsche's. And I think that, you know, it's important to talk about whether or not you think that part of this was her intent. Yeah. And we'll bring up the whole going to jail thing. It actually reminds me, I want to say it was Thoreau with civil disobedience. Is that Thoreau? Mm -hmm. Which is basically the idea is that you, if you want to make a stand like this, basically, if you want to make a stand on some kind of social issue, you do it peacefully and then you accept the consequences, which is basically that if you want to make a stand on something and making a stand on it makes uh, means that you end up going to jail, you accept the consequences and you go to jail because you've accepted that by being civilly disobedient. And it's going to be interesting to see here. I mean, it'll, it'll probably play out. I mean, we may see in the next couple of days, she says, you know what? I give up. I'll just start setting them or I'll resign because she doesn't want to be in prison. Or it'll really be a test of wills and she'll just say, I'm staying in here as long as I need to. And Matt, you know the specifics better than I do, but is she accepting the consequences? You know, what's the noise coming from her legal team and from, you know, the state of Kentucky? Uh, I haven't seen anything specific because she was only put in jail today and it was within the last couple hours. So, I mean, I think we have to wait a little bit more until we get specifics like from her legal team and what she has to say when it comes to a statement. But I'll, I'll look that up right now and see if I can find anything. If we're talking about setting new precedent, though, I think, you know, in her situation, the, the best thing, the absolutely best thing to do would be to say, I'm going to accept the consequences for my action. Because, you know, if you really, really, really believe in something that you're fighting for, just like Matt said before, it's civil disobedience. If in your heart, you know, it's the right thing and you wouldn't do anything in the world to betray it, the only thing that you could really do to to look like a hypocrite, the only thing that you could do to look like you are, in fact, betraying your beliefs, is to sit in her situation and scream and shout that she's been put in prison. Because I think in her particular situation, she has so much power. She's in prison. It sounds strange, but she has so much power in the situation that she's in because if she sits there, if she accepts the consequences, it makes, it's it's a noise that's so much louder, so much louder than it ever was just by sitting in prison and saying, I'm going to accept the consequences because I believe that this needs to be given more thought. Actually, I'm reading right now. I found a statement from uh, the organization that is representing her. And this is interesting. So she says, this is after uh, she was put in jail. This is the statement. Kim Davis is being treated as a criminal because she cannot violate her conscience. While she may be behind bars for now, Kim Davis is a free woman. Her conscience remains un unshackled. And then uh, after that, it also says, The tragedy is that there are simple ways to accommodate her convictions. Just remove her name from the marriage licenses. That's all she's asked from the beginning. Today's events will escalate this debate to a new level. Obviously, I didn't realize before going into this that removing her name from the marriage licenses yeah, was an option. I actually didn't even, yeah. But, but to go with that, I mean, there's a controversy already because if you remove that from the from the marriage licenses, you may be, I mean, you're giving that power to somebody else, maybe somebody who's not elected. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing. Is that the kind of power you want in somebody democratically elected? 
Or is that the kind of power you want in somebody who's appointed? But does that change that much or is it a distraction? I'm not sure. It's Because she's still, because the thing is, whether or not it's the state of Kentucky who is signing it, whether or not it's her who's signing it, uh, it doesn't make as much of a difference as, you know, my immediate reaction was to think, wow, I didn't even realize that. And it seems relatively simple. But in thinking about it a little further, I think, you know, it's 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 really a distraction. I think that, you know, she's an elected, she's basically in elected office. She is an elected office. And, you know, her name on it, all her name really means is that it's a, it's a physical symbol for the position that she's been put in. But, you know, I think I actually, you know, to her credit and to her legal team's credit for what Matt said before about the way they're responding to it. That, you know, like I said before, she has a lot of power being in a you know prison shelf. She has a lot of power. They're yeah, saying that when it comes down to it, she's yeah. the only one that can make this decision. Mm -hmm. And she's really, you know, she's freer than people really realize. Is the real power in, let's say, someone else is going to do this job? So basically, the only decision is you sign or you go to jail and face the consequences. But the, the real power in that is just, are they going to refuse and do the same thing? Or are they just going to have to find someone who will do the job? Yeah. If, if it's an elected official or not, they could just have someone who's just generically there just to do the job. And, and that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, to see how the county and the state and the government, the federal government respond to it. Because, I mean, it sounds like... Basically, if they appoint somebody else to do the job, they're kind of giving in. And from the perspective of the government, they may not want to do that. They may not want to compromise on their decision. But on the flip side, you have to have somebody signing marriage licenses because I'm assuming right now this means that nobody's getting married in that county. If there's nobody to sign the marriage licenses, nobody can get married. And I mean, it's, it's, this is going to be one to follow to see how it plays out. And uh, actually, I just have to say, because we're pretty much running out of time here, so I'll wrap things up. And uh, from everyone here, from the casting crew of Conversation, a political podcast, uh, thanks for listening and uh, have a great night.